Section 20 of Luke Guru. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Luke Guru by Eden Philpott. Tarantula. He was a Chinaman, rejoicing in the name of Tin Ling, but all men called him Tarantula. He dwelt in the heart of a little colony of coolies about five miles from Port of Spain, Trinidad. The community worked upon adjacent sugar estates, and the village itself, with its quaint wooden huts, coconut palms, and plantain trees, stood amidst miniature savannas dotted with cattle. Further afield extended green and tawny jungles of sugarcane sloping to the inland mountains, and from point to point iron roofs and lofty chimneys of sugar factories met the eye. From these would come mighty hootings of steam whistles, signaling the distant workers to hurry with more cane, and along the dusty roads, between hedges rustling with bright lizards, parched with sunshine, jolted tall wooden wagons, piled with the polished cane and drawn by mild-eyed oxen. Everywhere round and about the little colony fluttered dusky forms, the men in scanty garments of white with light turbans and snaky black hair on their shoulders, the women gay in fluttering glowing draperies decorated as to nose and ears with jewels, sparkling and tinkling in their flat-footed walk with necklaces and bracelets, rings and anklets of silver. Here, within his hut, beneath the shadow of his mango tree, dwelt Tarantula. He made friends with the coolies. They were exiles from their fatherland, like himself, but that was the only point of similarity. The Indians worked hard, saved money, and looked forward to a time in the future when they should return to their homes in the guts of Bombay, while Tarantula had no such ambition. After varied wanderings, chiefly in America, fate angered the man at Trinidad, and there he pursued his avocation of artist, lived from hand to mouth, handling his brush when his stomach was empty, lotus-eating in the sun when his fortune permitted it. He painted fans and screens, in which connection came his nickname to him. For a black spider, bloated and hairy, was as much a mark of Tarantula's handiwork as Mr. Whistler's black beetle is of that more modern master. Tarantula, to be plain, lived the life of a lazy scamp, and though, like his coolie friends, he affected a profound contempt for all Negroes, and the hybrid offspring of black and white that swarmed around him. Yet he could point to no worthier course of life than theirs. The Chinaman stood one day before the door of his dwelling-house. Infant coolies, goats, dogs, and black John Crows were playing and feeding and wrangling in the high-road but the artist and his friends occupied themselves with a more interesting sight 
and the gutters presented. A new family of coolies had just arrived and were getting their household goods into an empty cottage. The old inhabitants extended helping hands and combined frank curiosity with free hospitality. Tarantula, too, presently made a show of assistance, but his aid was actuated from a secret motive suggested by his art. The latest arrivals consisted of a mother, father, and two children. It was one of these latter, a tall, graceful, dark-eyed maid, who attracted the Chinaman so forcibly. Already he pictured her figuring in little on fans and umbrellas or appearing almost as large as life upon the lofty panels of some choice screen. Bayou was beautiful even in the eyes of her own people. At fourteen or earlier the coolie maidens are women, and then for a period, brief as the life enjoyed by many other tropic flowers, their beauty may be extraordinary. This girl, in her crimson robe, with her sweet, refined face, braided hair, soft eyes, and delicately molded limbs, might have attracted greater artists than Tarantula. Desiring to create a favorable impression, the Chinaman came with savory mess of steaming rice and curry, sweet potatoes and ripe mangoes on a plantain leaf. His present was accepted, and from that time forth the artist ranked among the first friends of these new people. Indeed, all proved extremely friendly to Tarantula, excepting only Vayu herself. The maiden was coy, a circumstance which brought some novel sensations into our rascal's life. He set himself the task of winning her goodwill, and from a condition of passive interest, presently found emotions of active regard awakening for her in his vagabond heart. The pretty coolie girl made self-satisfied tarantula dissatisfied. He compared his career with that of younger men, and grew jealous of the energetic Indians laboring towards their own advancement. He worked for Vayu, producing pretty things for her, and striving to delight her leisure when her day's work at the factory was done. He told her strange stories, moving adventures of varied sorts. He also taught her to fly kites, which he manufactured and maneuvered in expert Chinese fashion. Then, as she became less reserved and showed increasing delight in his society, he found that she grew essential to his own happiness. Indeed, Vayu occupied the artist's waking thoughts and tinkled her silver bangles in his dreams, while she came in brief time to think much of him too. Albeit but a plain gentleman, no longer young, he was a man of mark and skill, enveloped in an artistic haze, which, to the girl's mind, raised him above the males of her own people. But idle, improvident, and not oppressively moral, it must be confessed 
the tarantula was quite lacking in qualities or prospects to justify a step so responsible, a relationship so respectable as that of marriage. This fact Vayu's parents appreciated, and they had already fixed their minds upon an individual of character far different to the artist. Hassan was a shrewd, laborious coolie who had worked hard for many years and hoped anon when his contract with the proprietor of a neighboring sugar estate should expire to return a rich man to India. Apart from other considerations, Tarantula's case was hopeless. Had he been the most desirable inmate of the village, the iron law of caste could not have been broken for him. But meanwhile, Bayou herself decided for the Chinaman on an occasion of kite-flying, and when upon the eve of the same day she heard how Hassan had asked for her hand behind her back and had received it from her parents, the poor girl was in great concern. She knew Hassan and respected him, but she fancied that upon such a mighty issue he should have approached her first and her father afterwards. She wept for some hours, then, of course, obeyed her superiors and agreed to wed Hassan in a week. But the next day, conceiving that such a matter would fall less terribly from her lips than another's, she secretly visited Tarantula to explain the circumstance. He was working on a handsome screen designed as a present to Vayu's mother. Four of the panels were decked with a foliage of bamboo and with great white storks catching little fishes. But upon the fifth and central panel blazoned forth a notable portrait of Vayu herself, clad in crimson garb with a glorious background of gold. Tarantula spread a mat for his love and laid aside his brushes. Then he placed fruits before her and bade her eat and be happy. But she would not, rather choosing to plunge straight to the heart of the harrowing matters that brought her. No, said she, I am come in evil hour on evil errand. The child of the coolie must bend to its parent, and the caste of a coolie maid must determine her lot. My father has made choice, and my mother has chosen. Upon Hassan have they looked. From Tarantula they have turned away their eyes. So our hearts bleed, but presently they will grow whole again. It cannot be good that I should wed Tarantula, for my people are not his people. My God is not his God. I have no God any longer he said in her language. His hands shook, and his little narrow eyes almost disappeared. He turned from her and looked silently upon the screen. Then, suddenly, he faced round in a furious hurricane of rage. His teeth were set, his thin hands clenched, with their long nails crooked like a bird's claws. His wrinkled yellow forehead was drawn and dragged in a tangle of deep furrows over his flashing eyes. If your God hears, 
May he curse you and yours for this. Treacherous, fickle, untrue, Vayu, rightly called, faithless as the winds of the air. May you... He stopped and beat his breast. His passion died in a moan, and he fell on his knees and wept and abased himself before her. She had risen and looked down sadly upon him. Curse me not, Tarantula, for the curse of the rage-stricken avails not. I am in the hands of them that brought me into life, and their will must I do. Hassan, you love him not, he interrupted. He shall be my lord, and I must learn to love him. Swear now to me that you love him not, he repeated fiercely. I love not Hassan overmuch, but he shall be my lord, and I must learn to love him. He rose slowly and flung open the door that she might depart. Truly the sun of my being hath set, and night henceforth enfolds my goings, he said drearily. Grieve not for one poor maid, Tarantula. Your eyes are blinded, else you would quickly spy more beauty elsewhere, and other maids with brighter eyes and smaller hands than Vayu has. I have lived long enough, he replied. Depart now to your house, and forgive the angry word wrung from my heart by the sting of this sudden agony. Depart, and hear me ere you are gone. May Vayu's footsteps ever fall on scented flowers. May the great world love her. May her God open his right hand to her, and crown her days with all that is good. Farewell. Fare thee well, Tarantula. She vanished silently, and he fastened his door and rolled up the mat whereon she had sat and put by the fruit he had placed before her. Then he stood by the screen, and his brow became black again, and his thin mouth grew hard as iron. The work of his hands was finished. That day he had designed to present it to Vayu's mother. Presently, Tarantula put on an old straw hat and went to meet the coolies returning from their labors. He singled out Hassan, a dark, good-looking Indian with a gleam of gold in his ears and an expression of conscious superiority upon his face. Tarantula asked for a few words in private, and the other made no objection, so they turned aside down a deserted roadway but Hassan had not been blind to Tarantula's wooing. He knew his rival must doubtless know of his success, and deeming it but a mad thing to trust a man in such a case, looked to it that the long knife in his waistband was ready to his fingers. It appeared, however, that the artist's intentions were most friendly. Doubtless the matter of my thoughts is known to Hassan, he began, Today, having speech with Vayu, I learn of her parents' decision betwixt Hassan and Tarantula. It is enough. I cannot question such wisdom. You are, Hassan, born of their race, 
a laborer in the same field, a model of manhood. I am only Tin Ling, a waif, a man of no repute. Unlovely, unloved, so be it. I drink the sour cup of the vanquished, and, as a token of peace between Hassan and Tarantula, as a sign of friendship between Tarantula and Hassan, I would have him take at my hands a gift of the best fruits of my labor. Set forth in crimson and gold, in a heaven of all the stars, I have depicted your love, standing midst such devices as I use. I have portrayed Vayu. Come with me tomorrow, eat and drink, and bear the screen to your abode when you shall depart so that men may know Hassan has a big heart, and Tarantula harbors no guile. The coolie was perfectly ready to accept such terms. You speak with the lofty bearing of the Vedas, he made answer, and I rejoice that no star of evil discord has risen between us. For in the matter of maidens, sure many there are, and none worth strife between good men. Hassan accepts the noble art of Tarantula. Great is the wonder of it, for there goes abroad a saying on many tongues that never was such cunning ordering of colors. After further exchange of mighty compliments in which each tried to outvie the other, the men separated and returned to their homes. Hassan came in due course, supped under the shadow of Tarantula's mango tree, and departed at a late hour, as it was supposed, carrying with him the screen. But on the morning of the day that followed, the coolie's hut was found to be empty, nor could any trace of him be discovered. Tarantula's beautiful gift stood in the corner of Hassan's home but the solemn storks peering from it spoke not, nor could the fair presentment of Vayu explain the mystery. It wanted but three days to Hassan's wedding, and upon every side of his little hut appeared preparations for the reception of the coming bride. Then Tarantula told all he knew. Truly, he was with me last night, said the artist, we ate and drank and were merry, and when dawn raised white fingers above the mountains, he departed from me with a gift. Great search was made for the missing man. The canes, the woods, the savannas were all explored, but no sight of him, living or dead, rewarded the searchers, and mighty sorrow fell upon his fellows. The house of Vayu mourned deeply, and in Tarantula's hut there was sorrow too. For, he said, On the faces of those around me I read their thoughts. Tin Ling is not counted innocent in this matter, albeit Hassan was his own close friend. White words rise from black hearts, answered an old gray-headed coolie. Love is a giant, of the gods indeed, but balked love begets devils. 
Time powders a rock and strips naked the secrets of men's lives. We leave Hassan in the hand of time. The young coolie's disappearance grew to be a nine days' wonder. His place knew him no more, and others took up his work where he had left it. For Tarantula, whatever might be the truth, he held his hand hidden, dressed himself in spotless white, the color of mourning in China, kept carefully away from Vayu, and conducted himself with extreme propriety. The hearts of the people had already begun to soften towards him, when nature, in her processes, brought a sudden explanation of Hassan's mystery, an explanation terrible in kind, and of a sort to swiftly sweep away the main actor of this drama. A week after the coolie's disappearance, two negroes, standing on a little bridge outside the village, noticed a strange sight outlined against the sunset. Over a distant cane plantation there flocked and flew an ink-black crowd of John Crows, the vulture scavengers of Trinidad. They fluttered and fought, balanced themselves on the swaying canes, and filled the air with cries. Such an incident spoke louder than words of a definite circumstance. Something did down dar, said one negro. Something plenty did in de cane, answered the other. One dem coolie boys kill his wife again, he added. I specs dat's so. They awful wicked, dem coolies. A crowd presently noticed the eager vultures below, and amongst them stood Tarantula and an English overseer from a neighboring factory. Man or beast dead there, said the Englishman. Some of you niggers bustle down and see what's amiss. Gad, it may be that poor devil Hassan. Several blacks hurried off full of importance. Then the overseer turned to Tarantula, who was looking out where the John Crows fluttered screaming under a fiery tropic sunset. I'll buy your screen for five dollars, Johnny. You like ye screen? Pretty screen? Boss? No spiders? Not one. But pretty gale and whitey storks. Pretty value. I'll come tonight after dinner. You live by the big mango tree, don't you? Pretty gal, whitey storks, pretty value, boss. Tarantula's thoughts were down in the cane. The men parted, and as the artist hurried home, he nearly fell in the gloaming over a John Crow. Then he stopped and smiled a bitter smile, and stooping down, looked into the evil face of the vulture and spoke to it. Tin Ling forget you. Tarantula forget John Crow, the black policeman. Only one way for him now. The bird fluttered off, and the man, reaching his home, passed through the doorway and disappeared. Meantime, a noisy crowd started to the plantations, emptying cottage after cottage as it passed onwards, and filling the roadway with chattering negroes and coolies.
under the last glimmer of daylight, a handful of natives and two negro policemen entered the cane, and after a brief while came forth again with all that was left of a dead man. They carried the corpse to the village, and half an hour later poor Hassan's fate was known. He had been stabbed in the back and then dragged down, naked, into the sugar cane. When the crop came to be cut, nothing but bleached bones would have been found, bleached bones that tell no certain tale. Then spake up the ancient coolie who had shown such suspicion in the past. His words pointed in direct fashion to one man, and scarce were they spoken before a whirling, shrieking crowd of Indians under lurid torchlight sped to wreak red revenge upon Tarantula. The door of the Chinaman's abode was locked, but the mob quickly tore it down and tumbled in. For a moment the dusky group stood motionless, turned to black marble before the sight that met them, under the waving flame and smoke of the lights they held aloft. Only crickets chirruped in the hush. Then a savage yell of disappointment grated out of a hundred throats, and the hindmost coolies thrust forward so that the feet of their leading companions stood in dark liquid snakes that wound over the wooden floor. In front of the Avengers stood a tall screen, and at the foot of the portrait of Fair Vayu lay the artist, humped up and stone dead. Tarantula had saluted the world. He had made the happy dispatch after the hideous manner of his native land. End of section 20 Recording by Narrator J.